Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. All right. Good morning, Marcus. It's uh, great getting to see you and talk with you a little bit. Uh, I'm really excited about this episode of our podcast and being able to speak with uh, Chief Sean from the Mountain View Police Department. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, leadership and organizational culture and hear a little bit about him and, and his experience. So, Chief, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a busy guy and we appreciate um, you taking the time to, to step in and chat with us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, maybe you can start off just tell us a little bit about yourself. How, uh, you know, how, how long have you been at your department? How long have you been in law enforcement? Um, you know, maybe a little bit about your background. It's my understanding you have a tactical background as well. We're a tactical organization. So definitely love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been at Mountain View PD now 26 years. My first department that I tested for as an officer. Um, it's been an incredible journey. Um, loved every assignment I've, I've gotten to do. Um, it, uh, most of my career has been, it's been spent in two kind of silos. One is uh, investigations. I did a lot of time doing uh, property, ta- property crimes, person crimes, even high-tech crimes where I got to put my, uh, my geek glasses on and do some cool stuff there with the feds. Uh, but the other silo was uh, 13 years on our SWAT team. Um, our department's about a 95 sworn officer, so we had a regional SWAT team. Um, still do with the, our neighboring agency in Los Altos. Um, I was really fortunate in that um, normally when you get promoted, you kind of get kicked off the team. But it just so happened that every time I got promoted, the guy in front of me on the teams um, also had to move on. So there was always a spot for me to stay uh, on the team. So I got to do uh, not just assault, but sniper, rappel master, and then uh, rotated in as the uh, tactical commander. So best 13 years uh, by far of just having fun, right? I mean, you all know just uh, the training, the camar- camaraderie and the, the leadership that you develop and the, and the being having that experience. Yeah, agreed. No matter where you go in the country, uh, SWAT guys are their own kind of cats. And, and I really think it's just because we spend so much time together training. And it's one of the few places left in our profession where you have that camaraderie and you can't you can't hide your weaknesses how has your partnership been on the uh, regional team uh, side of the house and have there been any any challenges or anything that you've learned um, throughout your your progression or anything you could pass along for others who are kind of going through a regional team component we saw that we actually like in a sense divorced from one city next to us and well let me step back it went from two cities to three and then divorced from one of the three. And then we go back to two, right? And, and anytime you have a change like that, um, the operators are, are fine, right? It's everyone gets along. There's a lot of camaraderie, but what you see is, you know, the, the proverbial uh, mom and dad aren't getting along, um, which is, it's too bad, right? Because uh, it's, I think, um, you know, in the end it works out. Um, we even had one situation where we had a tactical commander rotate in from the other city that had no, um, SWAT experience, right? And so I think at the time I was a tactical commander representing our department. So you try your best to just carry, you know, each other along and, and develop that rapport so that um, on a call out or something, you, 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 don't, you don't let egos get in the way and you just absolutely try to respect where people are coming from and try to educate them. Because at the end of the day, it's about the, you know, the mission, doing something safely, tactfully. Um, and uh, I think I also appreciate that aspect of the teams is that you know the egos are egos but you have to know when it's time to push those aside because you never want to have to sit through an after action report and go you know what just because of someone's 
cockiness or ego, uh, it endangered somebody or put someone in a dangerous position or, or, or our planning sucked and we didn't communicate because, you know, we're, we were too stubborn to, to listen to each other. So you've been a chief about eight months now. And uh, let me ask you if you've experienced this. You were a previous SWAT for that long and uh, now you made chief. So there's always one guy on every team that's like, sweet, the chief's a SWAT guy. He's going <laughs> to understand our language. And at some point he bumps in you in the hallway and says, hey, chief, I need this uh, really cool high whiz bang thing. And I know you get what I'm talking about and how important it is. It's probably a safety issue. Right. And uh, I, I need this. Uh, could be an Abrams M1 tank. It could be a laser <laughs> gun. It could right. be whatever. But did you experience that at all? Fortunately, no. Um, the, I'm laughing because the very first request I got, like probably hours into the announcement coming out, I get approached uh, by the POA president at the time who happened to be, well, maybe this does qualify. He happened to be a SWAT sergeant at the time. So the very first thing, he didn't ask for equipment. He asked me to relax the uh, beard and goatee policy. Um, and it kind of was hand in hand with the tattoo policy too. So here I am, I'm thinking, man, I got the biggest decision in my life. Very first decision. Uh, but, you know, I, I also understand that you know, for that one, it's kind of a norm, right? I'm in Silicon Valley. So uh, guys with beards and uh, although immediately my head went to this, you know, the curly mustache dude, you know, there's always going to be one who's going to, going to push the limits. Right. So I, you know, we had a good talk and just said, look, um, it's got to be professional. Right. And, and we did a six month pilot, not a single person in the community complained, um, you know, and everyone was largely thankful for it. I did wonder if I was going to get, you know, the soup, the, the request for the Black Hawk helicopter with the night vision flare or whatever. Um, but I think if anything, the, the guys on the team know they're, they're, we, we take great pains into um, educating them on the budget side of policing and the political side of policing too. Here's a funny side story. Uh, prior to COVID, most of our operators uh, were tasked with um, working the undercover council detail. So every single council meeting would have one SWAT operator uh, just in plain clothes, just for security. The, the funny side effect of that is our SWAT team is like one of the most educated policy guys, right? They just understand the process. So to answer your question, you know, no, I didn't get anything too crazy, um, but I really uh, love the fact that our guys are, are pretty educated on what's going on and how the city works. That's a great by, byproduct, right? Because if you, I, I've never spent as much time in my career explaining how civil government works as I have in the last year with the mm -hmm. frustration of the frontline troops, not understanding right. where this stuff comes down. And especially the three of us work for police agencies versus sheriff's office. And so you have that difference. So I, I think that's a great idea. Nothing will make you appreciate more your chief than sitting in more. You got to do more than one city council meeting or board of supervisors meeting and yep. realize that it's the same 15 to 20 people um, that come and uh, there's always a few crazy people and there's always passionate people and just all that, that navigating thing. And I, I know talking to Brent, he's come home doing uh, lots of stuff like that. And obviously I've sat in uh, our city council meetings and it's a, it's a whole different playing field than I think what I appreciated earlier on in my career. Yep, for sure. Sure. That's how Brent lost all his hair. A year ago, he had blonde curly hair. 
I had a full head of hair before I had to start going and sitting in the council meetings and uh, learning a little bit about that. <laughs> Absolutely. I think part of that leadership journey is a lot of self-reflection, you know, as you move from one rank to another, and it's always the same thing. It always takes about 18 months to two years to really get comfortable in whatever that new assignment is and whatever that new rank is. And I think looking back, the people that are the most successful are the ones that take us take a few minutes to just reflect on where they're at themselves and not try to um, con their way through, you know, it's uh, through the new assignment. I found the best way to communicate with the, you know, the, let's say when I was a brand new sergeant is to just acknowledge and tell the team, hey, look, I'm new at this, guys. And uh, I'm learning just like you. And I'm, I'm going to look to you to, to uh, you know, pull me aside if I'm doing something wrong. Uh, I don't pretend to have all the answers. And if uh, you, you, we, you come to me and there's something we can't figure out, we'll, we'll go find the answer together. And I didn't magically come up with that. That was emulated to me by one of my mentors when I became a brand new detective. And that was the detective sergeant who rotated in. To this day, I still remember, you know, Sergeant Mike Alexander, he's sat me down and said, look, uh, I don't know, ever, I'll have, I don't have all the answers, but, you know, I'm here to help you out and, and support you in any way possible. Um, by far, I think the biggest uh, leadership takeaway for me is understanding that it's not what you say, it's what people hear, right? So you could be preaching whatever Kool-Aid or mantra or values, whatever, but if the audience uh, doesn't actually hear it, then whatever you say doesn't matter. So, you know, to me, I always look at the audience um, who I'm talking to and if it's a room full of people I grew up in the agency with, then they know me as Chris and they know that I haven't changed. And I can speak in a certain manner and tone and even reflect back on stories that we've shared together. If it's a brand new group of, uh, and, and you all know this, as you, the longer you stay, the more the new faces come in and, and they're, they're people. And when you start promoting, these are people who never worked a graveyard shift with you. So you don't have those shared stories. So to me, I have to, to change a little bit because I, in my head, I don't have the credibility with them. Um, they're going to follow the rank because that's what we do, but I would rather they follow the person. Right. And so, um, that's where relationship, uh, comes in and, 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 uh, humility and stuff like that. I took the, the words out of my mouth. As you were talking, I'm, I'm thinking humility. That's the kind of the, the core concept. That's what it sounds like. And, you know, you're, you're talking about, I really like that too. Just the humility to go, Hey, I don't have this figured out. I am working through this. I need a little bit of your um, input here to help me uh, decide. And I think that's a little bit of a trap for um, people, you know, coming in through, through leadership is that oftentimes you look at people who are decisive and you know, they can make quick decisions and, or, you know, authoritative maybe and, and, and have those type of things figured out. And it's probably, it's hard or a little bit counterintuitive to step back and go, hey, I don't have this thing figured out. And obviously in tactical situations, when things are happening, you need to be decisive and be able to make decisions and things out. But in a lot of what we do in the day-to-day -day versions of police work, personnel related, you know, vision, where are we going on these things? It's, it's okay to press pause, to slow it down, to build a little bit of a consensus, hear what other people think, get some of the ideas. And, and uh, like I said, it's a little bit counterintuitive sometimes for leaders. So um, I was glad to hear you use that phrase humility because that's exactly kind of what I was thinking that, uh, that you're, you're describing there. And you're also talking through communication, which is a big portion. Like you think you could be saying something and you know your heart, you know your mind, you know your intent in which you're meaning to communicate. But if that's not how it's received, it's complete communication-based failure. And that's been the biggest challenge 
I've been able to find at least within my own agency how to be able to communicate to you know the the end user to middle management to line level supervision to executive management to you know the community and have that messaging a continuity of messaging that is really gone with the heart in which you mean for it to be received and, and that seems to be a, a big struggle on, on the organizational leadership side yeah yeah absolutely i think um you know it, we have a this thing this term we use here is you know creating a place that's got psychological safety meaning um people don't people should feel like they have the ability to trip and fall it's okay like we almost encourage it because you know in government it's like don't make it don't don't go out and stick your head out and by god don't make any mistakes but really, you know, I, I personally, I think most people learn the best when they trip and fall themselves and get up, right? And then, then it's versus us kind of as leaders saying, you got to do it this way, this style, exactly these steps. Well, you're going to get kind of marginal um, followership that way. But when you, you know, understand that everyone that we work with, they're people made up of all different personalities. And if they can learn and have the, the confidence to make a mistake and know that they're not going to get hammered for it by their leaders. Um, and in fact, their leaders would come up alongside them and say, Hey man, I'm really sorry to see you go through that. What'd you learn from that? What can we learn from that? Let's keep going. Right. And something I used to always tell uh, people that worked on my teams as a sergeant um, was look, if you succeed, I am here to be your biggest bullhorn and, and heap the praise on you. If you fail, I'm your safety net. Uh, I'm going to make sure, you know, that you don't fall too far I'm going to pick you back up and set you on your way. Yeah, great, great uh, philosophy. There's things we can't do in our job. There's mistakes we can't make, but they're very few. Right. In reality, you can make a lot of mistakes and survive this job. If you're ethical, moral, you're within policy, and you just make a mistake, that's totally fine. And uh, sometimes we forget that. We get pretty bunched up about, you know, it's got to be this way and in that way. So I, I appreciate that you brought that up because that's a culture thing, right? And, uh, you know, we've had uh, somebody else on from your organization that we respect dearly and she talked a lot about culture. Yep. So uh, that's a hard thing to, to maintain. You jumped into this new job as a chief. Uh, we come from three kind of different agencies. Your, your agency's in the South Bay, mm-hmm. surrounded by bigger agencies. Um, you get a couple of agencies your size or smaller there. Uh, my agency's just under a uh, couple hundred and Brent's uh, well over 400 and he's in the, in the central Valley, which you and I prefer to fly over. <laughs> um, so uh, talk about that. Uh, if I could just digress a little bit, how do you balance that culture? Right? Because it's to me, uh, that's your force multiplier, but it's often very fragile. And uh, I've often thought I had a great week. And then by the end of the week, I'm like, nothing I did helped. And it all crashed, you know, on something out of my control. And I start again Monday or whatever day I go back and try to rebuild again. Have you experienced that? Uh, I know you've experienced it throughout the ranks, but is your point of view any different on how that works now? Because you you don't get that day-to-day with everybody right now as a chief. It's a totally... In my opinion, it's a totally different. You're spending so much time externally that you really have to rely on your deputy chiefs to kind of feed you that information. Otherwise, you might not ever get it. Right. So, yeah, you know, the the issue of like culture, how to maintain a really high flying, exciting place to work type of culture. um, It's a pretty cool 
mishmash of of how we got here, right? We I, I almost need to go two chiefs back, like two chiefs ago, Chief Scott Vermeer, when I was like growing up through the ranks, this is a guy who came to us and was a chief when he was 34, right? And really progressive. And he starts to institute a lot of kind of, um, at the time, very different thoughts, right? You've probably heard of Simon Sinek. It starts with why, right? Knowing your why. He brought that thought and that concept to our department. So it's the backstory of where I am now, because as I began to promote you know, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, that's what I was baked with. So now here I am sitting in this seat. And my mantra, if you want to hear what the Mountain View PD Chiefs Kool-Aid is, it's uh, it's excellence at every opportunity, right? And to me, I came into this business at a time where to be a uh, to be considered a great cop, you had to be like a dope cop, right? And that, that was the route. You had to make the most arrests and you got promoted because you made the most arrests and got the most dope off the street. I'll be honest, I was not that great of a dope cop, right? I mean, I could find stuff here and there, but I was not like like the typical guys that you see, right? Mine, I'm more of the brainiac kind of guy, I went the detective route, right? So, um, but that lesson to me was, we kind of have to break that mold. It, and to me, growing up through the ranks and now sitting here as chief, I will, if you were sitting in my briefings, you'll hear me preach about, I want you all to find your passion, right? You are all different people. You all have different uh, talents. So if you have a passion in life and if it crosses paths and overlaps with what we do here in the police department, go for it, right? Go, because to me, if you're doing something you love and it benefits the police department, it's gonna benefit the community. You're gonna love what you're doing. It's not even a, a job at that point. This is like passion, right? So we try to create that environment. And if that means we try some crazy stuff, we try some crazy stuff. If that means we fail, we fail. Um, and what's that's turned into, and here's an interesting kind of, story that goes with that is, is recently we've picked up a lot of laterals. Just, it's been really hard for us to get the entry-level folks. Um, the cost of living around here is insane, right? So um, what we've ended up doing, just the way things have worked out is we've gotten a lot of laterals from other Bay Area agencies. And what they will tell the people that have grown up within Mountain View PD is that you guys have it really good here. And in fact, you don't know how good you have it here because they were not treated the same way in their agencies, right? And there's something really special about that when collectively the whole department figures out and kind of goes, you know, you're right. We have it great. And so a lot of what you'll hear if you were sitting in my briefings would be, hey guys, we have something really special here. And it's all because of everything that you all contribute, right? The chief can preach from the mountaintops, whatever, but really day to day, it's the people that realize that that come to that collective realization, like this is a special place and we all have a responsibility to add to that. And so my challenge to everyone is obviously make an impact in the community, right? And, and it's not always about arrest. It's just making an, an impact, but here's the secondary challenge of that. Make a positive impact on your teams, on your wherever you are in this organization, whatever role you have, whether you're a dispatcher, you're in records, you're on patrol or detectives, examine yourself after six months, look back and go, you know, did I add value to that environment or was I a slug? Was I a negative Nelly? Did I spin out of, you know, cause people to, to be disenfranchised? I hope it's not the latter, right? I hope it's like, you can look back and go, you know what? This was an awesome team to work on. And I added to that value, right? Cause we all know what it's like to be assigned to that. We all have that experience, that one team where you're just like, that was the best six months of my life. We had fun, we looked out for each other, we took crooks off the street. Um, it was fun to go to work. That only happens when 
people collectively kind of get past that that hump and just realize that they all have to put in and contribute versus you know we've all been on the opposite teams too you, you sit there and you're just i remember my very first patrol team out of fto they were the dinosaurs and i made the grave mistake of calling for a fill officer 15 minutes before off duty time and i got pulled aside like hey kid you got to knock that off right and so we've all been around we've we've been there but you know to i think we've all love what it's like to work on a high performing team and when you talk about a department culture that's just having a bunch of high performing teams and collectively you look at each other and and i tell the people this all the time look at that patch on your shoulder i hope you're proud that it says mountain view on it cuz i am and i know people around the country know about mountain view pd and and the culture that we have here and they do they actually do in reality that's true right and and we've all met those people at agencies at trainings and call outs and mutual aid and you're like I like that. If that person represents that agency, I want to go there. Mm-hmm. Right. If that person represents that agency, that's a horrible place to be. I don't want to go near that place. Yep. Right. Yep. And, and if you're listening, which one are you? Right. The guy I want to represent misery is optional yeah. and, yeah. and police work isn't different anywhere in the, in the, in the state or the country we're dealing with human beings they all have similar problems. We all have similar problems in our, in our agencies. And it's just how we choose to address them and, and what our attitude is every single day. And uh, it's funny, the older I get, the more I realize that in a leadership position, there is not a lot of things I can do to improve your morale. But there's a lot of things I can do to damage it. Yep. And you have to come with the morale. You have to come with that positive attitude. It's my job to give you those tools to get you wherever it is you're trying to go. And if I don't do that, I can absolutely have a negative impact. And there's some things I can do that help your morale, but in the end, they're, they're minor compared to the damage I can cause by mishandling you, you know, or if you do make a mistake, right? Absolutely. Yep. I think it's kind of to your point, Mark, some of the things the chief was talking about a little bit earlier on some, some things to do to maybe improve morale when you're talking about the beards and the tattoos. Those are the type of things that you might be able to make things slightly a little bit better, but kind of like that too. And, and I think that's a challenge for every leader is that, of course, you want your people to have good morale. Of course, you want them to be happy at, at work and to be happy with your organization. But I, I think you're 100% right that a lot of that is self-driven. And, and Chief, you talked about you know your why and knowing knowing the why and the assignments and a component to that. And I think there has to, we have to foster that in people that there's a little bit of that internally that they're driven to. And Marcus, to your point, finding that balance that we do have the ability to, to really damage it, but that there's there's some individual components and responsibility to chasing and, and improving um, your own your own morale. And I see a lot of leaders that spend their time chasing um, the the morale, and that's a really hard thing to to quantify, anyways. You know, but I, I see you see sometimes morale dip in, in times of if crisis kind of that leads me into an article that you wrote um, about the three strategies for uh, for crisis leadership and and in, in looking at the article one of the things that struck me was how you kind of laid it out and how you broke it down almost looks like um, like you looked at this problem and developed almost like a tactical plan from it it almost <laughs> it looks like if you took some tactical principle and then you identified what you wanted to and kind of bled over into your article and 
is, you know, before we talk about the, the kind of your article, the three strategies for crisis leadership, have you seen any bleed over from your time as a tactician, as a SWAT operator, and a team leader, and a commander, and the things you learned about and implementation? Has that bled over into, you know, how you lead throughout the entirety of your organization at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, the number one thing you look for when you, you're selecting SWAT operators is the ability to focus and see the whole entire playing field when you're under like some sort of critical incident stress, right? So to me, um, I apply that all the time it, to, to whatever is going on. You, you show up at work and all of a sudden you're, you're handed this, you're dealt this terrible deck of this terrible hand of whatever's happening for that crisis for the day. And instead of running around with your head on fire, you kind of take a step back, take a breath and go, okay, um, what's, what's some immediate action that we could do to set up and, and just mitigate the, the first few parts of the crisis. And then what's the mid game, what's the long-term plan, uh, you know, the, the terms that you're all familiar with, right? What's the inner perimeter, outer perimeter, what, uh, commander's intent do I want to give to the leadership team that's on the ground to at least let them know what direction I want to go. And then, you know, half an hour, an hour passes. What do I need to do to update that now that I have more information, because we know that initial information on any crisis is almost always wrong. Um, so that everything SWAT taught me on that, especially from a SWAT commander's perspective, uh, it's so valuable, right? It's just the ability to stay calm and even pause, um, one thing I've always appreciated with the, the tactical teams, what I've seen is operators typically take that extra half second when they can and pause and actually exercise a lot of restraint. And that's so counter to what we see in Hollywood or, or the media, right? But what, what we see when we you know, take your average SWAT officer is the ability to, to, in a very mature way, take that half second and just look at the situation before using force or not, right? That what the the, the story that comes to mind is, you know, I can't tell you how many times we've hit a door, gone in and dogs are rush, rushing us. Can you shoot the dogs? Yeah, you can shoot the dogs, right? That's, that's a use of force. But what I've seen is that extra pause, or even when you got this um, guy sitting in the driveway, waving a gun around and that gun kind of lasers the team, could they use legal use of force? Yeah. But what I've seen is, you know, they knew they were behind cover, they were behind an armored car. Uh, even though there was a legal threat, they took that extra pause, let the negotiators do what they need to do. And to me, I really appreciate, you know, that aspect of it. And that's carried over to now, you know, uh, obviously I don't get to have all the, the fun being on the street or, or going out on calls, but um, it's actually a lot more boring with what I deal with, but same principles apply to just look at holistically, what am I dealt with? Um, what commander's intent do I need to give to my captains and lieutenants and say, this is kind of the direction I need you to go in. Same, same exact stuff. It kind of leads me into um, to your, your article that we read about the, the three strategies for, for crisis leadership. And maybe you can touch on them. Initially, it's the, um, the first strategy you have is to ensure effective communication. Then you talk about fostering an adaptive organization. And third, creating a safe place uh, to thrive. So can you talk to us a little bit about uh, what that you know, where that comes from and those strategies come from and your thought process behind them. Sure. So like on the communication thing, we have a saying here in the police department, it's, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. Right. And so you can't take whatever your message is and say it the exact same way to all the different groups. Right. We obviously, if you're talking to a member of the public, they 
have a limited understanding of police procedure and tactics. So you need to shift your communication to educate them on what that's about. If you're talking internally to your troops, well, they have a very different perspective and experience. And so um, we look at it kind of like, I don't know if you've heard of the, the phrase, the three-legged stool, right? Anytime you have a three-legged stool in a, an organization, you have one, one leg is the community, one leg is um, you know your elected officials or city manager, and the other one is internally. And so for a solid organization, you have to be able to communicate effectively to all of those different groups. Um, if I'm going to be doing something uh, and I'm informing the city manager, the council, or our electeds, I take great care into then turning back around and informing our POA, um, letting them know what's going on so they don't, they're not surprised and hear anything. Making sure your communication is received and your message is tailored to the audience so you get the most accurate communication possible, especially during a crisis. I really like your fostering an adaptive organization also. I think we all recognize leadership requires an adaptive style, but the practical application during a crisis is dependent on what kind of crisis you have and who your audience is. Can you elaborate on that for us? Um, so I think a lot of your listeners might be familiar with the term fixed versus growth mindset for an individual, right? So if you're a fixed mindset individual, you tend to kind of see the world as things happening to you, kind of the woe is me. Um, why can't we go back to the way things have always been? Someone with a growth mindset is actually very different that, you know, when something bad happens, they kind of go, okay, what can I learn from this? What can I do? What do I need to change about what I'm doing or how I see the world to adapt and overcome? What's interesting is this is not just a police thing. This, um, I remember my kids in elementary school, I think third grade, they came home with a worksheet that talked about fixed versus growth mindset. So um, it applies to all of life. So if you take that concept and now apply it to an organization, right? We know that an organization is a living and breathing thing. So organizational culture as a whole can either be fixed or growth. So here's, you know, after the summer that we had last year, you could hear it coming from some departments where it's like, screw everybody, batten down the hatches, the world hates us. Uh, we're just going to keep doing what we're doing. That's a very fixed mindset. But then you had other police departments and leaders who would say, hey, look, the world has changed around us. Let's look at what we need to do internally. What are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What can we improve on? That's a growth mindset. So from the day I kind of assumed uh, this role as a chief, that's what I was like, you know, number one, we have to acknowledge that the world of policing changed around us, right? And as a new leader, I'm like, we're not gonna stick our heads in the sand. In fact, we did very much the opposite. We uh, went out and found our harshest critics and we brought them in to have the longest and hardest dialogues, like over eight weeks, very difficult questions. Um, and it's, it's kind of based loosely on a, on a citizens Academy, but really what it was, was getting 10 people of our stakeholders and our critics and just listening to them and investing that time and energy for them to get to know us. We've now done three of those and it's been a huge success because now they understand how we are different, but I attribute that to the organization of Mountain View PD being an adaptive one. They're open to change. Um, we even created a, an innovation team when COVID hit. And that innovation team, the very first thing I said to everybody in the group was, You're, everyone's invited, rank doesn't matter. Somewhere in this group, we have the solution to get through this next crisis, right? And so um, we've got a couple people in our department, um, our captain, uh, one of our lieutenants, and even our PIO who attend um, next Stanford University's right next door. They have a, a lead program and basically they use design thinking. 
So design thinking is basically like, um, take all your ideas and preconceived notions, put them to the side. There's, there's different ways to approach different things. So we incorporate that too, to, to kind of build and foster that adaptive organization. That's good stuff. And, you know, that kind of probably leads into the third point, which is creating a safe place to thrive. And that sounds kind of like where you're talking about as it relates to the, the innovation. And you touched on it a little bit earlier too, that there's this natural inclination that um, we can become risk, risk averse and you don't want failure and you don't want anything like that, but creating an environment where it's okay to make a mistake. You know, you're doing the right, you're trying to do the right thing for the right reasons and the results might not be what you want them to be. Okay. What can we learn? You know, what can we learn from that? And, and then being able to um, let that translate in um, throughout the entirety of your, your organization where people feel comfortable uh, being able to bring up things to, to innovate to try to make things a little bit better. Right. Yeah. I, I think, so here's the hard part. Think of uh, when we get, when we go through the Academy, what's happening is we're getting yelled at for everything. We're writing memos every time we do something wrong or, or we're doing pushups. Then you get out to FTO, you're, you're evaluated every day and you're pretty much told every little thing you did wrong from you know the not using the blinker to whatever. And so psychologically, we kind of make it extremely difficult for our people to then transition into, oh yeah, this is a psychologically safe place to make a mistake. So you kind of have to, as a whole, our, our industry needs to kind of take a hard look at how we train. And I, I get it. You know, I, I know there's some academies out there that are really like hard charging, break them down. I understand the, the, the reasoning and rationale for that, but we better be doing the other side of the coin too, and teaching people how to, you know, psychologically be in a place where they can make mistakes and not like just tear themselves apart for it too. Or, you know, the worst thing is the fear of, of stepping out. I think we've all been in those meetings where, you have that voice in your head. You're like, I think I have the solution to this. But I don't want to raise my hand. I don't want to say anything because there's a leader in the room who uh, either the ego is going to get in the way. It's not their idea. It's too far out there. Um, and if you have multiple people in the room that feel that way, now that's what you call groupthink, right? That's where that's how the space shuttle Challenger uh, disaster takes place. Is is people were afraid to to kind of come out and raise their hand and, and say something counter to what was acceptable in that room dynamic. Um, so as leaders it is really our responsibility, whether you're the chief or whether you're a patrol sergeant to create a team environment that it is safe to come out with different ideas. Um, especially if you're talking about a critical incident, someone on that team probably has the answer, a safe tactical answer <laughs> to, to resolve whatever the situation is. But if your style is such that you generally shut people down because you have to be the smartest person in the room or you have to have, you know, the decision or whatever, um, that's a huge danger and a huge liability. So organizationally, you know, our, my emphasis is really, uh, I think I said at the very first command staff meeting I had as a new chief was, hey, everyone, um, I don't have all the answers. But somewhere in this room, the answer is here and we will succeed together and we will fail together. Um, it's inevitable that something is going to come our way in the near future and we're going to trip up and that's okay because we have each other's backs, right? That's, that's the environment I like to set at least. But I think if we're being honest in the industry, that's not always the environment we hear uh, in different departments or different work units. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. And as you're thinking as you're saying that, I'm thinking through it and, and thinking, you know, how you balance that with 
you know, after action reports and how you balance that with accountability and the accountability piece of, you know, making sure that we're honest with um, our shortcomings, but still creating that environment where you feel safe and being able to make a mistake. And that is, uh, that is, that's, that's a tough balance to, to, to strike. Yeah. And I think if you're, especially for a leadership podcast, my challenge to every one of your listeners, who's a leader is you have to model that first. You have to be the one that gets in front of whoever you're in charge of and says, Hey, I made this mistake and here's what we can all learn from it. Right. Once you've modeled that and you've allowed for, um, in the room to say like, yeah, you know, he, he or she bared their soul and they, they were vulnerable. It's not as weak as it sounds. It is in fact, very powerful. It takes a lot of courage. Isn't, doesn't happen enough in our industry, but what happens when you do have a culture that invites that is you just really take it to the next level. Yeah. And here's the secret. They already knew that we screwed up. Right. <laughs> exactly. So- so tell, saying it out loud is just you giving them permission to, to participate in something they already knew happened, right? Absolutely. So we're just fooling ourselves when we don't, we don't just go, hey, man, I know you guys saw this. So here, <laughs> hey, here's what I did wrong. I apologize. Here's what I'm going to do different. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, please help me not do that again. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, I think it's a great irony of police work that... They, we spend so much time screening our applicants and we're looking for people that can go out and solve problems on, on the community's worst day, right? We go to someone's house and they're having a bad day uh, and there's a crisis going on to the point where, where the government had to come in and help them calm this down. And it could just be a verbal argument. It could be a tragedy. It could be a crime. And we spend all this time and then somehow internally those same people that we screened, we think they're going to buy our bullshit and they're not. <laughs> right. Right? right. And, right. and, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, as I, as I got older and, you know, really tried to examine myself and, uh, worked for some people that really were the emperors have new clothes, you know, and thought to myself, and I still worry about this every day. What am I missing? What do I not know? And have I created an environment where someone's going to look me in the eye and go, Hey man, you're really off on this one. Cause I don't want to lead the troops over the cliff. Right. right? So, um, so save me from myself. And uh, it, it's pretty interesting, but we, every once in a while, we'll, we'll think that uh, our stuff doesn't smell. And, right. uh, but we hired the best smellers in, in society. <laughs> So it's pretty, it's a pretty ironic uh, thing to listen to every once in a while. That's a great way to put it. hundred percent. Thank you, chief. And uh, I hope I don't see you or anybody from your agency for mutual aid in the next few months. But if I do, (laughs) I I thank you from the North Bay and uh, I'm just kind of waiting to see how the next few months play out. So thank you for being here. Absolutely. It's a pleasure and honor. and, And I thank you for having me on your podcast. Thank you for listening to the Cato Podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.